I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now last week, recall, as a kind of introduction to the series in 2 Samuel, we were actually in 1 Samuel chapter 15, which was the pivotal moment when God revealed that there was going to be a shift. I wonder, do you recall the shift? A shift from the kind of king that we deserve, the kind of tyranny, really, that we bring upon ourselves through worldly, fleshly wisdom, and the better kind of king that he had determined to give his people according to grace. And that, of course, would be fulfilled immediately in David, but it was a picture of Christ to come. And so we saw that lays a foundation for understanding a way of relating these two books. 1 Samuel showing us what we deserve. 2 Samuel is a major theme showing us, in some ways, many ways, the God, or the man after God's own heart, a sense of who Christ is in light of who David is. Now, the very next chapter after 1 Samuel 15, Samuel goes out and anoints David as king, and he does so secretly because Saul is still king functionally. Between that time and where our text picks up tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 1, 14 years have passed. So there's a lot of water under the bridge. During that time, David has fought Goliath. He is risen up in fame. He's been given a position really second to Saul. Even Saul's own son, Jonathan, has acknowledged David is really on his way to being in that position. And then Saul has become murderously jealous and fearful of David and has been for five years pursuing him in and outside of the land to kill him, him together with the forces who are loyal to David. So all of this has happened between last week and where we're at this evening at the beginning of 2 Samuel in chapter 1, and something else has happened immediately before this. The army of Israel led by Saul, they've gone out to fight the Philistines, and they have been defeated, disastrously defeated. The whole bulk of the forces of Israel's armies are now laying dead in a battlefield, and Saul and Jonathan, too, his son and heir, have been killed. And it's at this point, David is unaware that we find a messenger coming to David, and that brings us to our text of verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. 
Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having preserved for us a record of your working among your people, together with both their successes and their faults, in order that we might be instructed and encouraged. We ask that you would open up the text for us to see Christ and to see how he would work in and through us. All of these things we ask in his name and dependence upon your spirit. And God's people pray. Amen. What kind of response do you suppose the Amalekite was expecting to receive when he brought this message of the defeat of Israel's army, but also of the death of Saul? Although, on the one hand, he's dressed as if he's been in mourning. Note that. He's got dirt on his head. His clothes are torn. That's possibly just battlefield dirt. But it's likely that he understands there's something sad, obviously, about this. But on the other hand, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10, tells us he thought he was the bearer of good news. He thought he was the bearer of good news. And why? Because although the bulk of Saul's forces are defeated, and that's, of course, a tragedy for Israel, he's thinking relative to David. These are the forces who had hunted David for five years. And now they are defeated. Not only that, but this Amalekite had personally ensured Saul's death. Imagine the relief that somebody might feel if they had been stalked for years by someone trying to kill them. David could never get a good night's sleep, apart from the supernatural work of the Lord, until... Saul was dead. That's why you find in the Psalms David saying things like that the Lord gives his beloved rest because it really was a supernatural act of kindness that God should put aside the anxiety for a few hours so that David could sleep. He had been harried by Saul for so long and now he finds out that Saul is dead and this man had personally ensured it would happen. Even the way that it takes place, it's a little ambiguous 1 Samuel tells us that Saul fell on his sword and that he gave himself a mortal wound. So this man, at most, quickens the death. And it's possible, many people believe, that he didn't actually kill Saul. He just found Saul and he's fabricated this story. David's own words a little bit later, as we're going to see, is, you testify that you did this. And the phrase there, testify, would indicate that David's not even sure that he did. But the way that it comes about, it looks, it's really good politics. 
The Amalekite is able to hand over to David a story of a mercy killing that at the same time protects David and opens up the path for David to seize power. Practically everybody knew that David was one of, if not the, likely person to reign over Israel following Saul, and especially after the death of Jonathan. So here this Amalekite hands him on a silver platter just this ideal situation. He can, David can spin this perfectly if he wants to. And then to top it off, the Amalekite comes bearing the royal symbols of power. We should not underestimate the value of such symbols, particularly in ancient cultures, but really now as well. They can have tremendous power. In the 1200s, the last of the Hohenstaufen dynasty was executed, Duke Conradin. When Duke Conradin was executed, he was brought up to you know, a platform, a stage, and they were about to kill him. And he took off his glove and threw it to a knight in the crowd. And it turns out that in his glove, he had his signet ring, the representation of the authority of the Hohenstaufen dynasty. And that knight used it as a rallying symbol to bring war back against the people who killed the duke. A symbol of authority can be incredibly powerful. And in the case of David, now he is possessing the crown of Saul. What a piece to be able to say, clearly God wanted me to have this and worked it out in just this way. This is all the trappings of a situation where you might expect, and the Amalekite in all likelihood expected, David to begin celebrating, to salivate whatever face he might put on of mourning for a national tragedy. This is his moment for power. And a moment, in all likelihood, to reward the Amalekite. What we're going to see, however, in David's response is that it gives you a glimpse of something of the heart of God. And something of the heart that God desires for the one who would rule over his people, the kind of king that he wants for us. So, though imperfectly, it does give us a glimpse of Christ. And because Christ works in and through you, it gives you a sense of who you are called to be. So these are some of the ideas that we're going to look at tonight in this passage. We're going to look at it under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. Because this response of David can be looked at in, I suppose, two stages. Two different stages of his response. The first is an emotional stage. And then the second is going to be judicial about the way he actually reacts to repay. But look at me at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David's first response is emotional and it is extraordinary sorrow at the downfall of the Lord's anointed and the defeat of his people. His reaction is deep Sorrow. Now notice, it's not just for Jonathan. Jonathan was his best friend in the whole world. And Jonathan has died. But the text is very clear that it's also for the house of Israel. These are the same people, many of them, who hunted him 
for years. Now, of course, it's possible to object that they're just following orders, that it's really Saul who's to blame. But the text is careful to include, as you see in verse 12, that he mourned and wept for Saul. And what does this reveal to us? This reveals, among other things, that David was not consumed with selfish ambition. He was not consumed with selfish ambition. He wasn't consumed with personal, private bitterness either. To David, the well-being of God's people was more precious than anything else that could come to him. The death of Saul, he knew not only is that a tragedy for Saul, but what a blow that is going to be to all the people. And most of the Israelites didn't even know that Saul was at fault. Saul, remember, had the the tools of politics at his disposal and had made the nation to think for a long time that David was the one to blame in this conflict. This is going to be a deep blow to God's people that their first anointed king is dead. It will test their faith. And on top of that, Hundreds, thousands of men wounded in battle, many dead. David's heart goes out in this situation. And you see his first response is not to lick his lips and think, what am I going to get from this situation? His response is one of tremendous compassion. And we see something here then of a shepherd-like heart. This is the kind of heart God wants to have over his people. Even though we know, sadly, by experience, if you are familiar with history at all, whether long-ago history or present history, it's often not the case with those who seek and obtain power that they would have this kind of heart. Where is David getting this heart from? Psalm 116, verse 15. It's very brief, so I don't ask you to turn there. But this gives us some insight, something David writes elsewhere, his understanding of who the Lord is. Psalm 116, 15. Precious or of extreme value, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And that would include those who stray, who stumble. David doesn't know the hearts of these people. He just knows that they are numbered among the visible church. And he grieves when any of them fall. There's not a sense of celebration at the downfall of any professing believer especially at their death. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1, tells us something explicit about God's heart, though it's written long after David's time, yet it's appropriate. Ezekiel 33, verse 1. And consider this relative to your own heart, towards the people that most offend you in their sin. It says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? As the Lord looks upon in that context there, especially his covenant people, the professing church, the Lord says, I don't take any delight that any of you should perish, that you should come under extreme judgment or discipline for your sins. I want every one of you to walk with me. The Lord prefers repentance to ruin. And so it should be in all of those who bear his anointing. As we are called Christians and we share anointing. David having been anointed was a picture of that which was to come. 
that we desire repentance, not ruin, that when we hear of somebody falling, whether spiritually, whether morally, whether literally succumbing to the consequences of their actions, to the death, we don't celebrate that. Particularly if they are professing Christians, though this has sometimes been the case, we are so blessed by the Lord to live in a time in this land where we don't have extended civil war. But just think back, not that long ago, even as it is in some places now, you have professing Christians on both sides fighting to the death. And it's one of the mark, I think, of the better officers and generals on both sides during the civil war that they would ban the troops, though it was may not have been great for morale that they would say, we will not celebrate a victory against other Christians uh, with hooting and hollering for an extended period of time, that there's a gravity about this. We take no delight in God's people falling. But if that's pictured in David, as we saw last time, David was by God's design something of a preview, an imperfect one, but something of a preview of Christ who was to come. That according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised that David's descendant would sit upon an everlasting throne. And this is Jesus Christ, who's descended on Mary's side as well, legally by Joseph, from David. And then we think of what we see in Christ, it really comes to an even greater fullness. When he looks upon the city that hated him and brought him to his very death, what does Jesus do? He weeps for them to repent. I mentioned this morning that Jesus speaks of being, wanting to be like a a hen that would gather its chicks under its wings, even to die, as I'm sure you've heard stories of that. A fire in a barn, and they find underneath the hen living chicks. And Jesus says, that's how I feel about my people, even as you hate me. This is not a heart that you get from yourself, and I'm not asking you to become better people by yourself. It's something that we ask the Lord to form in us, and indeed he does do in his people. To have a compassion even against those who have persecuted you. Think of Jesus' attitude towards Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And yet he would call him and bless him. Jesus' dying words on the cross, a prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the kind of king that you have in Jesus Christ. When he hears about your failures and falls, When the message comes to him like that, because he knows all, he doesn't celebrate and gloat over the pain and the agony that come to his people as a consequence of their sins. He's not happy about it. He's on your side. He's on your side, and he can do more than David. David couldn't bring back these people from the dead. David couldn't turn back and restore. But Christ can, and so in the first place, The Lord calls us to have that heart and to understand Christ has that heart for us. That's the first stage, the emotional stage of David's response. The second stage of his response has to do with his repayment to the Amalekite. His repayment to the Amalekite. Now, how should he repay the messenger? The messenger has come at certainly great physical cost, probably some, not just the fatigue, but the danger of passing through enemy territory, And he has brought, you know, he could have brought the crown and the armlet to someone else. How is David going to repay him? Historically, people used to be given 
great prizes if they personally delivered message of a major event, especially of a victory. You have to turn back the clock before instant messaging. How valuable this was. In fact, there's an entire uh, history book written on one such incident. It's a, if you're into that sort of thing, it's, it's riveting. Of a race after Napoleon is defeated at Waterloo, there's a race to report the victory of the Duke of Wellington. And no less than five men are all sent out and told whoever gets to London first and brings a reliable report will be given an automatic promotion, a massive promotion, and a major bonus. And so these men just go at it. It takes about three days as they take coaches, they're stealing horses, they're doing all kinds of stuff to try to get there. If they have cross water, there's storms going on. And it finally comes down to a gap of something like 20 minutes. Tremendous excitement over what reward am I going to get? And I'm associated with bringing this. And we wonder what the Amalekite was expecting. But look at verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand, to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. That is a heavy response to a man who is probably 17, 18, 19 years old. A heavy response that he has struck down for this. David's response is judicial, and it represents an extreme zeal, in this case, to avenge Saul's death. I would caution, however, that I think this is different than the kind of unhinged reactions of King Saul earlier. Remember, Saul would fly into a fit and throw a spear without warning. David, according to the text, has had hours to think over this situation. He got the news sometime in the morning. It says he's fasting until evening. He's praying. And so this is calculated. Whether or not it's exactly right, I actually don't claim to have certainty. There are plenty of reasons, however, to believe that it was warranted. For instance, I lay before you just a few. We saw last week, God had already placed a ban upon the Amalekites. One sermon is not going to be enough to convince anyone about God's authority, his right, to say over anyone he wishes, your time is up. The Amalekites' time was up, and the scripture is clear about why that was. Every Amalekite warrior had a target on him already. Saul had been the point in 1 Samuel 15 where Saul is removed from God's claim of remaining the king, is specifically over failing to kill the Amalekite warriors that he spares them alive, and in all likelihood, this is one of them. David, by contrast, according to our text, that very morning, what had he been doing when the Amalekite shows up? He was out killing Amalekites. Whatever we may think of this, David respects the ban of the Lord upon those people, and he's going to carry it out. 
But then second, and this is what the text emphasizes in verse 14, Saul had been anointed king. Anointed is much more than just that people wanted him to be the king. The word anointing reflects, you know, the very word we're talking about here literally means to apply oil to something. But the oil was a picture of the Holy Spirit and of God's choice to set a person apart for a specific office and to empower them. There are only three classes of people who are anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. All of these were specially pictures of Christ who was to come, pictures of God ruling as our mediator. And so they were to be reverenced. In fact, for instance, Psalm 105, the Lord declares, do not touch my anointed ones. Do not harm my prophets. It's that extreme reverence for this anointing that the person coming with the anointing is as if God was among us. Maybe a really faulted person like Saul, and yet think how often David stays his hand. He has opportunities to kill Saul. And he submits to it. He says, I don't know why God wanted this man to be in this position, but God made the choice. And I'm not going to be the one who takes him out of the world. He respects that anointing because he understands God's authority and power. And in some sense, he anticipates what it relates to, the Messiah who is to come. And so David's reaction here is based in part that a king has been killed, and not just a king, but an anointed king. And you say, well, there weren't multiple witnesses. When a person confesses, generally the law dispenses with the need for multiple witnesses. On practical levels, we might draw a few lessons from this. Perhaps this would lead us to revere those whom God places in special positions of authority. And scripture does speak to that. And for instance, Romans chapter 13 about reverencing those God places in positions of authority by his power. But I think there's something on a larger theological level that is actually more beneficial for us to consider here than that. Because there is a danger. And I want to be clear about that. The Bible in some of these Old Testament stories is, it describes things. That doesn't necessarily mean it's prescribing those things. Just because David runs out with a sling and kills someone does not mean that you should run out with a sling and kill people, right? That's the difference between descriptive and prescriptive passages. In this passage, what is definitely clear is that we are catching a glimpse of David's zeal for the anointing of the Lord. And that a life has been taken, and according to Genesis chapter 8, whoever takes a life unjustly, their life will be shed. David has a zeal to carry out God's will, the ban that was already out against the Amalekites who were cursed, and a zeal to avenge the anointed. I want you to then think about the parallels, because these parallels are formed by the Holy Spirit. The more you know of Scripture, the more familiar they become. There's a parallel between King Saul and Adam. This is by God's design. King Saul and Adam. God chooses a first king in Saul to be the head over his people. He grants him his image. In a sense, we can say Saul and Adam are both anointed in that way. And King Saul, the Lord, even though he chooses him, is fully knowing he's going to fail, that he's going to fall. And similarly, when God 
created Adam and set him over the whole human race, he knew Adam was going to fall. There's a kind of parallel between Saul and David, Saul being the first and then David the second, and then Adam and Christ. And so appreciate the picture here. Even though Saul was guilty of tremendous injustices towards David, David has such regard for the anointing and the image of the Lord and the office of the Lord upon Saul that he is going to do whatever he can to avenge that death. But how much more in a righteous way should we admire what Christ does? Adam, and together the whole human race with him, Adam has offended the Lord, has persecuted, has done injustice to the Lord. And when Adam falls... The Lord takes seriously Satan like the Amalekite. He says, I will not tolerate anyone who touches my anointed. When God looked at Adam's fall, he didn't, you see it even in the text of Genesis chapter 3, immediately his wrath against the serpent. And Christ comes not simply as an agent of redemption for you, he comes as an agent of vengeance against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The book of Isaiah, again, there there are these parts of the Bible that we tend to skip over. But the book of Isaiah, there's a a prophecy concerning Christ where it describes him as if riding in, uh, in blood up to the bridle. The Lord has real zeal to avenge the injustice done upon humanity in our fall. Though it was, in a sense, by our own hand, like Saul, yet the devil has a hand in it, too. And so we get a picture of the zeal that Christ has for humanity. But then in a secondary way, too, are we not Christians? And what does the word Christian come from? It's a diminutive of Christ, which is to be anointed. And as our catechism says, and as the word declares, we share in his anointing. And so we get a picture in David's extreme reaction, how much more in a righteous way is Christ zealous for the welfare of all of his people. If we share his anointing, we share his kingdom, we are called to reign with him, then Christ doesn't look lightly upon the death of his saints. On the other hand, he can be extremely gracious. Again, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The only way he can balance it out is, of course, by suffering on the cross, the very things our persecutors deserve. But for anyone who remains in Their opposition to Christ, even as Jesus says, if you're not for me, you are against me. You're serving a world that's feeding into a lie. For anyone who stands outside, we can be assured that Christ will bring the vindicating justice that we need. And so we see that David's reaction was not at all what the Amalekite expected. But it was exactly what the Lord wanted us to see. And it's what he wants you to take from this in terms of Christ's relationship towards you. Maybe you've fallen in the past week in some, I mean, in one sense, we fall every moment. We're always sinning. But there are more grievous sins that weigh upon us. We are always stumbling, tripping, but maybe there are things that make you feel remote from the Lord this evening. Understand, Christ is on your side. He sorrows at our falls, but unlike David, he can raise us up again. He can give life where there is death. And even as we consider the way that the church, not just ourselves individually, but the church throughout the world, endures tremendous persecution 
and temptation and struggle. Christ is zealous for his people. He will avenge them and he will be faithful. Finally, may this lead us to show great regard for all who bear his name. Psalm 16 verse 1 says, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. God help us to have that. To delight, to think, you know, I, I sometimes meet a person and I find out they have a skill that I don't have that I admire. And instantly I delight in them. Oh, you're a woodworker. I just pretend. And I think that's wonderful and I want to talk to them and get to know them. May the Lord fill us with such a delight in those that God has chosen to fill with his Holy Spirit. Because he has delighted in them out of grace. And what they shall be is better than any woodworker. They shall be like Christ in glory. That we would look upon them and rejoice in them, even if we hardly know them, to think that they are among the Lord's people. With that in mind, let's ask the Lord to help us in all these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the way that you have woven together stories throughout history that bear witness to the character of Christ, that invite us to compare and to contrast your saints of old with our perfect Savior. We ask for a portion of Christ's zeal. He has the Holy Spirit without measure. We ask for some more of that this coming week. Lord, we thank you for uniting us with a people who will not remain dead on the battlefield, but who shall all be raised to life, for the victory is yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.